Hey, good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to get to speak to you this morning and be a part of the series. I did not approve that picture, um, although I have to say there's many, many of those pictures out there of us stuffing our faces with all kinds of different food. So honored to, to get to continue our series this morning and thankful for Pastor David. Aren't you, aren't you thankful to be a part of this church? It's a blessing. Uh, I wanted to ask you, I, I was thinking about this recently. Have you ever thought something was true about yourself and then you went through an experience only to realize you were wrong? I, I had this happen to me when I first got married. Um, my wife and I met at Bible college. I was... 18, she was 21. She was a senior. I was a freshman, so she was kind of a cougar, you know. And um, I think she was desperate. She knew she was graduating. She's like, I just got to grab anybody, and I happen to be the guy. So I'm thankful for that, my blessing. Um, but the first time we met, I was sitting in a chapel, and I had long hair at the time. It was down on my shoulders, and I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I feel someone run their hand through my hair. I'm like, I turn around, and my, it's my wife, although she wasn't my wife at the time. And she said, I'm sorry. I just had to touch your hair. And I fell in love immediately. That was, that was the moment. And, um, and so we started dating. We got married. I was barely 19 when we got married. And we moved into a house together. And I, I, um, I remember thinking to myself, all right, now I got to be a man. I'm responsible for this woman. I got to take care of her. There's nothing I can't handle. I quickly realized that wasn't true. The first time a pipe leaked, I was like, I can't handle this. We need to call somebody. But I, I did still believe that, you know what, I'm strong. I, I'll, I'll protect her. I'm very courageous. I'm very brave. That I can do. And I remember one day I was in the house and I heard her screaming from the living room. So I ran into the house and she's standing on the couch screaming. She said, there's a mouse. There's a mouse. And I'm like, babe, come on, don't worry, I got this, right? Like, this is why you married me, not just for the hair, also for the bravery, okay? I was like, where's the mouse? Point me the right. She's like, it's in the closet. And so I walked to the kitchen. We had a little closet where you store your brooms. And I walk over there, and I open it up, and I'm looking around, and, you know, I'm feeling pretty tough. I'm like, all right, where's this little mouse? And, and all of a sudden, she screams, it's right there, it's right there. And without even thinking about it, I mean, this is total instinct, no, comp, no, no plan, no, no running through scenarios and figuring out, just complete instinct, I immediately jump as high as I can and at the same time run. I don't know how I did it, but I did, and I land myself on top of the, the kitchen countertops, which, by the way, are now higher than she is, which I think was strategic. I got high ground on the, on the mouse. And, and, I, and immediately her screams turn to laughter. She's just laughing hysterically. And I look over and she goes, there was no mouse. I just wanted to see what you would do. She's like, you're more scared than I was about a mouse. And, uh, and I, tried to, I tried to tell her, no, no, that wasn't fear. That was, um, that was reaction. It was strategy. You know, I was trying to get a good height to observe the mouse. But Nevertheless, I realized something about myself that day. I thought I was more brave when it comes to rodents than I actually was. And um, I'm sure we can all relate to circumstances like that. In fact, today we're going to continue this series in the, in the book of Habakkuk. And in this story, what we see is a prophet who is not having this question about himself. He's not saying there's something about me that maybe doesn't make sense or maybe I was wrong. He's actually asking this question about God. 
See, what he's facing is the circumstances of his life don't line up with what God has told him about God, about himself. And so he's saying, God, here's what you say you are, and here's what you say about me and about your people, but what I'm experiencing doesn't seem to line up with what you say. And Habakkuk is asking this question that I think is a fundamental question that every human at some point in their life will wrestle with, which is this. God, is what you say true? Is what you say true? So this morning, I want to encourage you to lean in this morning, take these next 20 minutes or so to allow the Holy Spirit to speak with you, because here's what I believe. There's some of you this morning who are in the midst of one of the worst times of your life. Maybe you're going through a divorce. Maybe you're dealing with a loved one who all of a sudden was diagnosed with cancer. Maybe you've recently experienced loss. Maybe you have children who are acting in a way that you don't know what to do. Maybe you've lost a job or financially you're not sure how you're going to survive. But maybe you're not in that place this morning, but I still want to encourage you to lean in because here's the reality of life. If you're not now, you will at some point. And when those moments come in our life, this question will inevitably arise, and how we answer it is so important. I'm going to read uh, the text, we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Here's what it says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. It said, The Lord replied, Look around at the nations, look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your own day something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. I'm raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer other lands. They are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than the wolves at dusk. Their charioteers charge from far away like eagles. They swoop down to devour their prey. Pray. Oh, they come all bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind, sweeping captives ahead of them like sand. They scoff at kings and princes and scorn all of their fortresses. They simply pile ramps of earth against their walls and capture them. They sweep past like the wind and are gone, but they are deeply guilty, for their own strength is their God. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for that time of worship. And we thank you for the message that um, Pastor Jeremiah shared with us this morning. And we just know that you're speaking. And I pray that our hearts would be open to what you would have to say this morning. Holy Spirit, as you work in us, that we would be open to say, God, maybe I'm wrestling. Maybe I'm going through a difficult time. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm in a desert right now, and I have questions. And this morning, God, would you give us the answer? That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if, if you missed last week, it was a phenomenal sermon. Um, Pastor David kicked off this series. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was really good. Um, and if, but if you weren't here, that's okay. I'll try to fill you in. In order to understand the text that we're reading today, we kind of have to know the background. And, um, and basically, what we find out in this story of Habakkuk, and, and essentially what we're going to look at today, is we're going to look at the uh, idea of one question and two answers. Habakkuk the prophet has one question, and God responds to him with two answers, okay? And so the background story to, to this whole narrative, if we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, we have God who creates Adam and Eve. He creates mankind, and sin enters the world, and they go through all this crazy stuff. We've got the flood, and, and eventually we're introduced to this character named Abraham. And God says, Abraham, I'm, I'm choosing you. Out of you, I'm going to create a people. And these are going to be my people the nation of Israel, and they're going to be a blessing to the world. And they end up enslaved in, in Egypt for hundreds of years, and eventually he takes this guy Moses, and Moses helps lead them out of slavery, and they come to this place called Mount Sinai. And in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, is one of the most important texts in all of the Old Testament. God says to the people of Israel, he, he says, I brought you out 
meaning I've given you a new identity. It's all grace. You didn't work for it, but it's my identity I'm giving to you. Now obey my commandments and you will be blessed. So he says, because of your new identity as the people of God, obey me, do what I say, and in doing what I say, you will have blessing in your life. Your, your, your personal life will be better, your marriages will be better, the community will be better in every way. If you live the way I've called you to live, there'll be blessing. But then he goes on and takes a step further. He says, and you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Meaning this, as you obey my commands, you're going to show the world who God is. As you live countercultural, everyone will see you and they'll know who the true God is because of you living different. So, so God is giving the nation of Israel an identity and a mission, and now he's saying, go do this. And fast forward all these years later, the prophet Habakkuk, whose job is to speak really for God to the people, he in this book is instead speaking from the people to God. And what's happening, why he's so distressed, is that the people of God are not living for God. They are not obeying God. They're for, they have forgotten their identity. And like many other times throughout the Old Testament, they begin to, instead of living counterculture, they begin to adopt the practices of the cultures around them. They begin to not look different, but look the same. And Habakkuk is upset because he appears as if God doesn't care and isn't doing anything. And so he raises the question to God. Raises the question to God, God, is what you say true? And what I find interesting about this question is I actually think it's a fundamental question for all of, all of us many, many times. And really a lot of humanity, a lot of people who don't believe in God wrestle with this exact question. And the question in, in, the, idea, in the, uh, the idea of apologetics, which is the defending of a faith, is called the problem of evil. And it goes something like this, right? God could not be all-powerful and all-loving because I'm going through this situation, fill in the blank. Right? Because I have this loved one who's sick, there's no way God could be all-loving and all-powerful. And the reason is, is if he was all-loving, he wouldn't allow this to happen. So maybe he's all-loving, but he's not all-powerful. He can't change it. And if he's all-powerful and he can change it and he chooses not to, then he must not be all-loving. And if he's not all-loving, then I don't want to worship him. And if he's not all-powerful, then he's not worthy of my worship. This is the problem of evil. And it's a fundamental problem if you have conversations with people who aren't believers. Oftentimes, this becomes a problem for them. Why? Because we find ourselves in life facing a circumstance that we don't understand. Going through a hardship, a desert, a trial. Going through one of the most difficult portions of our life. And we hear things about God. We hear truths about God. But what we hear does not align with what we're experiencing. And inevitably we go, God, is what you say true? Are you really loving? Are you really powerful? Because it doesn't seem like it. Uh, I, one of the things I do for my job is I travel a lot. And um, when I travel overnight, sometimes my kids, I have a 9-year-old and 11-year-old, They'll, they'll bring their mattresses into my wife and I's room, and they'll sleep on the floor, and they do like a little slumber party, you know? They probably barricade the door, and they put all booby traps. Who knows? You, you, know, you, know, what, you know what that's like. And, um, and I remember the other day I got home from my trip, and uh, I was moving their beds back in, and my daughter, who's nine, she says, Yay, Daddy's home, my protector. I finally feel safe because I know he would never let anything happen to us. And if you're a dad in the room, you know what that does to your heart, right? You're like, I, I felt so good. I'm like, man, I've shown her that, that I, I would do anything for her. And she knows I would even, you know, I would lay my life down for her, right, for my family. I would do anything to protect her. And at first I was filled with this joy. And, and, and all of a sudden, though, I remembered a conversation I had with a family member. 
And he was talking to me, and, and this family member had a daughter who was younger than even my daughter. And they found out that his daughter had gone and been abused. And I remember he's telling me this story, and he said, you know, it was about six months after we found this out, and this bombshell dropped in our family. I mean, utter destruction, one of the worst things a parent could ever go through and experience. And he said, six months later, I was in a public pool, and I was throwing my daughter up and catching her, you know, like dads do. And one time I threw her, and I threw her real high, and she got scared. And she said something like, Daddy, catch me. Or, Daddy, don't, don't let anything happen to me. And as she's falling and catching her, he says like good dads do. He said, don't worry, Daddy will never let anything happen to you. And he said, immediately I burst into tears because I realized I couldn't say it. See, here's the truth. I would do everything within my power to protect my family, to fight for them. I would do everything in my power, and I do, to make sure my life is going well, is going smooth. We would do everything we can to situate things in a way that is good and, and blessed for the people around us. But the reality is this. If we're honest with ourselves, we are limited in what we can control. We can't control life sometimes. And oftentimes, we find ourselves in situations where everything feels out of control, where we don't know what to do and how it happened. And this morning, here's what I want to tell you. It's okay to ask this question of God. God, is what you say true? One of the things I love about this book and many others in the Bible is it reminds us that God did not punish Habakkuk or call him a sinner or say he lacked faith because he asked the question of God. In fact, there may be some churches or Christians you'd be around, and, and if you said, God, I don't understand what's happening, this doesn't make sense to me, they would say, oh, that's a lack of faith, or you're not as strong of a Christian, but that's not what this says at all. In fact, this says the opposite. God is interacting with him. God is calling him, and if you listen to, to Pastor David's message last week, one thing you're going to hear is him, him point out the fact that God invites us to bring our issues to him to bring our complaints and our struggles to God. He wants that. That's one of the beautiful things about God. And so this morning, if you're in the midst of a storm, if you're in the midst of the worst situation in your life, here's what I want you to hear. You're not a bad person for asking the question. In fact, God is welcoming it. He's saying, bring it to me because I have answers. Amen? Amen. Number one, the question. Number two, we're going to look at there's two answers God gives. We're going to look at the first answer. So in verse 5, here's what God replies. It says, The Lord replied, Look around at the nations. Look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. So God's response, God's answer to this question is an interesting one. He, uh, he, he looks at... He looks at this situation, and, and what he realizes is, here's what's actually being asked in this moment. See, Habakkuk understood something about God, because it's kind of a weird thing, right? If you, if you picked up on it, what he's asking God is, he's saying, God, I love my people, and they're not acting accordingly, so would you come and punish them? It's kind of strange, right? That's a little bit of a weird request. In fact, he's frustrated that it seems like God is not punishing his people, for acting, for, for being disobedient. But Habakkuk realized something about the punishment or the wrath of God is that all throughout the Old Testament, we can look at it and sometimes it appears to us that God's punishment is punitive, meaning he's just this big bully and when you do anything wrong or mess up, he's looking to smack you down. 
But Habakkuk understood that's not the case, that God's punishment or wrath or judgment is always restorative. It's always redemptive. The purpose of God is not to destroy, but to actually uplift. What he's trying to do is to bring his people back to him. He's trying to awaken them from their sleep spiritually. He's trying to get them off of the wrong track and bring them onto the right one. And, and this is similar. I, I have this conversation with my kids just recently. Like, Dad, why do you always yell at us at bedtime? I'm like, because bedtime is horrible. That's why. Right, parents? You know what this is. I have a 9-11 year old. I thought it'd be better by now. It's not. It's just as bad. I'm like, here's why I yell at you, because I tell you one thing. I'm like, go brush your teeth, use the bathroom, and then I tell it a second time, then a third, then a fourth. I feel like this is pretty gracious at this point. Now a fifth, right? At the fifth, okay, now I have to yell, right? I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want, I don't want, but I have to. And so I'm like, dad has to yell because you're not listening. So I have to snap your attention back. I have to get you out of the path that you're going in so you recognize, hey, I need to do something different, right? The same is true with God and, and with us. And so what we see Habakkuk doing is he's saying, God, don't you, here's what he's asking, don't you love your people? Why are you not doing something? Why are you not correcting them? Because they're living in a way that is not a blessing to them. They're not flourishing. They're not thriving. And you're not doing anything about it. Don't you love your people? He's asking the first part of this question, the problem of evil. And God's response is, look around and be amazed. He says, for I'm doing something in your own day that you wouldn't even believe, even if someone told you about it. His answer is, not only am I aware, yes, I'm aware, but I'm, so, I'm more aware of the situation than you could even imagine. I am, I am at work and un, have an understanding of what's taking place beyond your even comprehension. God is declaring in the biggest way possible that, yes, I love my people. I, have you ever seen the movie Castaway? Anybody? So I like that movie. In fact, I, love, I like that genre, right, where people, like, there's, there's a plane crash or something. You've got to survive on an island. And uh, there's something fun about that. I don't know if it's the, I, I like to think, would I, how would I do? Would I survive? Truth is, I probably wouldn't last long, but I like to think I would. And, um, but one of the things, the worst about those movies or TV shows is like, it's one thing if you crash and people know you crashed and it's like, all right, we've got to survive a couple of days. You know, who are we going to eat? Who's the biggest one? <laughs> but it's a, it's a whole different, like the story is way worse when it's like, Hey, we crashed, but our radio equipment went out before we crashed, so no one even knows where we are, right? There was no ping. No one is even aware that the plane crashed. They will have no idea where we are. The reason that's worse is because the reality that people aren't aware of your suffering makes your suffering so much worse. It makes it more hopeless when you think no one understands, no one's even aware of what I'm going through. And the same is true with God. And that's what Habakkuk is saying. He's like, do you even, aren't you even aware of what your people are experiencing? Don't you even love your people? And what God is declaring over and over again to them is, yes, I'm aware. And I love my people in a way that you couldn't understand. Um, the worst phone call I ever got in my life. I was in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, the phone rang. It was my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law was like a mom to me. I, I never understood in-law jokes because I... Loved her to death. And um, she called me and she was crying, which is not usual. And she said, I, got, I was just diagnosed with cancer. And, uh, and I, remember, I remember praying for her and 
got back home and this started a two-year journey of just one setback after another, just getting worse and worse and worse until eventually she passed away. And it was one of the worst moments up to that point, probably st maybe still is the worst moment of our life. And, and I remember walking through that and trying to help my wife through that and our kids and thinking to myself, one of the things that made it so much worse or made it so much more difficult to understand was when I first met my mother-in-law, she had a thing called lupus. And her whole adult life, she, she was diagnosed with lupus. She had lupus. She struggled with it. And one day when I was in the family, I'd been married for a couple of years, I was praying and God said to me, I'm going to heal her of lupus. I was like, oh, well, that's cool. So I shared it with her. I said, you know, God said this. And we went on years and years and she was never healed, never healed. And, and so one day she went to her lupus doctor and he said, I don't, I don't know how to explain this, but you don't have lupus anymore. All your numbers are, everything's gone. Every, like, you don't have it. And so she came back, and I remember we were, like, rejoicing. We were so excited, and she was getting close to retirement, and it was like a new lease on life, you know? Like, look at this. And six months later, I got that phone call. And I remember saying, God, like, it didn't make sense. Like, don't you love me? Don't you love her? Don't you love my kids who are now going to lose their, their grandma? Right? What my life was experiencing did not line up with what I knew to be true about God. And I asked this question. And what got us, what got me through and it got us through those moments was his answer. And it's, it's the thing that this answer points to, which is the gospel. Because in the gospel, here's what I can know. I don't know why things are happening. I don't know why she would have been healed of lupus only to be diagnosed with cancer. I don't know why my kids lost their grandma when she was in her early 50s. None of that makes sense and I still don't know why. But what I do know is it's not because God doesn't love me. And it's not because he doesn't love her. Because when I, when I doubt that or when I wrestle with that, the answer that I need is found in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. When I look to the cross, I'm reminded that the king of the universe gave up everything for me. And he gave up everything for her. And so I may not understand it, but what I can know is it's not because he doesn't love her. It's not because he doesn't love me. And today, it's not because he doesn't love you. Answer number one. Answer number two. Verse six, he said, I'm raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. A cruel and violent people. So he goes on and um, he asks this question, God, is what you say real? And God's first response is, yes, I know, I know what they're going through and I love them. And then his second response is this, I have a plan. And if you go back again to the problem of evil, he's answering the second part of that, which is, I'm all-loving, and I'm also all-powerful. To say he has a plan is to insinuate that he has the ability to execute that plan, meaning he has the power to do it. And that's exactly what he's saying in this statement. He's saying, I'm raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. Now, what's interesting about this statement, and you're going to probably learn more about this next week and the weeks to come, is the answer that he gives to Habakkuk, his plan is one that Habakkuk will not like. And the people of Israel will not like. In fact, it's a plan that's very difficult and hard to understand. And here's why. The Babylonians were one of the most cruel groups of people that existed at the time. They were horrible. In fact, when we read that scripture at the beginning, God goes on to list how horrible they are. I mean, he says they're, they're notorious for their cruelty. They're swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than wolves. I mean, it sounds horrible, right? He lays in about how terrible they are. And yet he starts off by saying, that's who I'm going to send to punish my people. 
And Habakkuk, of course, is wrestling with this. He's like, why would you send a people who are worse to punish them? This doesn't seem to make sense, God. Forget what I asked about your plan. I think I'd like a different plan because that one sounds horrible. Right? I mean, that's, that's what he's wrestling with. And this interesting in his response that God says, I'm raising up the Babylonians a cruel and violent people. Because in this statement, God is kind of exposing one of the great tensions in all of Christian theology. In fact, in fact it's a great tension in life. It's, it's something that has been wrestled with for thousands of years. And as long as it takes Jesus to come back, it'll continue to be wrestled with. And I was meeting with Pastor David um, for, for lunch last week, and I, I brought this up. I said, hey, I think I've got to address this because it's a, it's a difficult thing in the text. Um, and he said, yeah, I think you should. That's why I gave you this text the week I was gone. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Thank you, my friend. Yes. But notice what he says. He says, I am raising up the Babylonians, right? So what God is saying in that statement is, I am sovereignly doing this. I'm in control. But then he goes on and says, a cruel and violent people, meaning they are responsible for their actions and their sin. Well, which is it? Is God in control? Is he raising them up? Meaning, why would they be responsible for the bad things they do? Isn't God causing them to do it? Or is it that they're responsible for the things that they're causing to do, and therefore God is not in control because they have free will, and thus raises this great theological debate between God's sovereignty and human free will? And without uh, getting into that debate, because honestly, you can have your thoughts, and I certainly do, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. There's two truths that we need to know that matter. And here's what they are. Number one, God is saying, I am fully sovereign, meaning I am in control of all things. There is nothing that happens in life that God is not still in control of. Now, that does not mean he's responsible for every bad thing that happens in life. But what it means is there's nothing that happens that he's not also in control of. Sometimes we think about, the, uh, about life like God and the devil are up playing a game of chess. You know, and, and they're try God's trying to do his best, and every now and then the devil makes a move, and he's like, oh, man, good move. You got me on that. You know, but, but eventually God wins, and that's not at all the case. Like, if the game of chess has been won. It was settled on the cross. God has won. Jesus has, Jesus has declared victory over sin and death. And so what this is saying is that God is sovereignly in control of all things, which means this, even in the worst of times, we can rest to know our life is not out of control, but it's in his hands. In the most out-of-control moments, we can still know he has us. So that's the first thing he says. But the second thing he says is, you and I are also fully responsible for our sin. Humanity is fully responsible for the decisions and the choices they make and the sin that they commit. And one of the things that he's laying out in this text, because what we'll find, spoiler alert, God also punishes the Babylonians. One of the things we're going to find out is this. The worst problem that you and I have is not what happens to us, but it, what, it's what exists in us. Our biggest issue is our sin. Now, some of you have been victims of some horrible things, and certainly I've shared some stories of, of, of victims, and that is not to undermine the, the things that can happen to people that are horrible things. We're, many people are victims of other people's horrible choices, but the biggest problem that we have in life is not what happens to us. It's the sin that exists in us. And so when we doubt and when we ask, God, do you have a plan? The answer's already been given in the gospel, which is I have a plan and have demonstrated my plan for the biggest problem in your life. So if he's got a, if he's got a plan for the biggest problem we face, then surely the smaller problems we can give to him and trust in him. Right? If he's got a plan for our sin and our shame that he's settled 
once and for all, for all of eternity, then when we go through other hardships, when we go through other struggles, we can trust and know to say, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know he's got a plan. I can rest once again in the gospel, knowing not only does he love me, but that he also has a plan. I'm going to invite Pastor Antonia to come up. In a moment, we're going to sing a song as we close. But I want to, I want to encourage you in this idea. I don't know about you, but those moments in life, and I've gone through some of them, where I'm going, God, this doesn't make sense. God, is what you say true? And certainly... Um, the times when I go, do you even have a plan, God? This does not seem to make any sense. I remember thinking that about my mother-in-law, thinking it doesn't make sense to me that you would take her. I don't understand how it could be a good thing that my kids don't get their grandma, that my wife doesn't get her mom, right? It doesn't make sense. And I, I want to I share with you two truths that I think are important and have helped me walk through that. They don't help, they don't answer the question, but what they do is they remind us of two things that are true. The first is this, we have a limited capacity. When we're dealing with life circumstances that we don't understand, we remind ourselves that we have a limited capacity. Here's what I mean. I, I, recently, I was thinking about something I did and said about 10 years ago, and I thought to myself, Jared, you're such an idiot. Anybody ever had that? Some of you are like, yeah, 10 minutes ago <laughs> on the way in. Um, and then I realized 10 years ago, I had the same thought about myself 10 years prior to that. And, and most likely at that time, I had the same thing 10 years prior to that, which means I'm always an idiot. Because 10 years from now, I'll probably look back at myself now and say, what an idiot. Remember that sermon you preached? Um, so here's the lesson. We're always idiots, which means, which means that should create some humility in us that we have a limited capacity to know what's best and what's right. Maybe there's things happening right now that don't make sense to us, but maybe in 10 years they will. Maybe they won't, but the reality is, what it tells us is we're not the best judge about what's best and what's right all the time. And it's possible that we're making a mistake in us assuming that our plan would be better than God's. We have a limited capacity, and the second truth is this, we have a limited perspective. See, I, uh, I, I share this with people like, oftentimes, let's say you, you, if you're lucky, you live 80, 90 years on this earth. And certainly many people live shorter than that. Now imagine you're living 80 years on this earth and, and one day you've had this experience, I'm sure, you wake up on a Saturday morning, you haven't got your coffee yet, you're a little groggy and you're walking through the kitchen and you stub your toe, right? And you're like, oh man. And in that moment, it's like the worst pain you have ever felt in that moment, right? It's horrible. But assuming you didn't injure yourself, an hour later, are you thinking about that? No. A day later, a month later, a year later, if you're on your deathbed and you're surrounded by your kids and grandkids, are you thinking about that one Saturday morning that you stubbed your toe? No, why? Because you have perspective. See, that momentary pain compared to all of the joy and all of the things that you've experienced fades away. The perspective transforms that to not even be a thought that registers in your mind. Now that's a moment compared to 80 years. Imagine 80 years compared to eternity. Imagine eternity spent 
with Jesus, spent in a, in a place in the new heavens, new earth, where there's no pain, there's no suffering, all the sick are healed, all wrong things are made right. We're with Christ, our creator, for all of eternity. Imagine what we look back on our lifespan of 80 years compared to eternity, and the worst moments of our life now, when we're in eternity, will be even less significant than stubbing your toe in your life pan, lifespan of 80 years. Why? It's perspective. We have to remind ourselves, God has a different perspective than we do. And we can pray for things and we can want things in this life, but the bigger perspective is not just the here and now, it's what he's doing for all of eternity. So in those moments, friends, when we're lost and broken, we can remind ourselves that he loves you and he's got a plan. And this morning, here's what I wanna, here's what I wanna focus in on. The answer to that question, God, is what you say real, is found in the gospel. And because of the person and work of Jesus, this morning, if you're going through that time, you can boldly say, like my nine-year-old daughter, my father is here. He's my protector. And no matter what, he'll never let anything happen to me. And unlike her, you don't just say, he would die for me. You get to say he did die for me. That's what we rest in. That's what our hope's in. And today in the midst of a storm, that's where we find joy. It's in the person and work of Jesus. Here's what I wanna do to close, because I realize some of you may be going through a storm and maybe you need more than just uh, a sermon, but maybe you need some prayer this morning. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna close with a singing of a song. And right now I'm gonna invite some of our church leaders to come down. And as we begin to sing, if you would like prayer for something you're going through, we wanna invite you to come up. We'd love to lay hands with you and pray for you. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for us right now. And then we're gonna sing. And if you need some extra prayer this morning, would you come forward? God, we thank you for your work. I thank you for Jesus. We're so thankful, God, for the truth of the gospel, the good news of what he's done for us. We're thankful that despite our sin and brokenness, he gave up everything so that we could be found blameless and holy and righteous in his sight. We're thankful that despite the injustice that happens in the world, we know that we serve a God of justice who will make all wrong things right. We're thankful today, God, that no matter what our circumstance or situation, we can know that we may not understand it, but we know you love us and you have a plan for us. I pray that that truth, the truth of the gospel would sink deeper and deeper into our hearts. This truth is a person and his name is Jesus. Amen.